Amen. Good morning. So glad you're with us here at South City Church. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And it is our joy to have you with us today. If you're new to us, what a pleasure and privilege that you've allowed us to, to be here with us, that you've come to be with us, to worship with us. And we hope that you feel at home and uh, we're just glad to have you. Of course, I wish we were having a contest today, honestly, because then I think I might win for all the guests that we've got from the family. So glad you're here, family. What a joy it is to have you with us uh, today, South City and all that God's doing in our church. Uh, I want to give you sort of a little background as to where we've been, what we've been doing. We've been in a series for the last little while, several weeks, called Faith and Freedom. And it's a study in the letter of Galatians. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, had been on a missionary journey. He'd gone to some different places, and he ends up mostly in the southern part of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Back then it was called Galatia. And when he gets back to uh, Antioch in Syria, he hears that there's a scandal going on in the church. It's a big deal. It's a serious situation. Paul is not happy. In fact, Galatians is written with this bite of anger, this bite uh, of uh, seriousness. From the very first words, Paul is defending the fact that he is an apostle of God and that he has credibility from Jesus Christ himself. He is sent uh, to the world to make disciples, and he's letting them know that. First couple of chapters, he's talking about that. And he's speaking to these people who've come into the Galatian churches. The letter's not written to one person. It's not written to one church. It's written to a, a group of churches in Galatia. And he's saying to these churches, uh, I, I taught you Jesus. I, I, I preached to you Jesus Christ crucified, that, that when we are saved, it's not something that we earn. It's not something that we do. It's not by our works. It's by the grace of God. That's something I've taught to you, Right. But these Judaizers, these people from Jerusalem, have come into the churches of Galatia. They've also infiltrating the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch in Syria. But he's speaking to this group of churches in Galatia. And he says they've come in and they're saying that Jesus is not enough. That it's not just faith in Christ that you need, but you also need uh, circumcision. Right? You have to follow the Mosaic law, the Jew- Jewish law and rules and regulation. It's not enough that, that salvation is by some other things too, not just by grace, not just through faith. It's those things, but it's also these other things that we add to it. Paul says in early in Galatians, when we add to the gospel of Jesus, we reverse it. We make it a no gospel. It, it's a very serious thing. In fact, he says that the people who do that will be condemned to hell. They are damned. It's a very serious accusation. It's a very serious letter. And so Paul has been, for three chapters now, he's been defending his apostleship. He's been teaching and saying, the gospel of Jesus is by grace, right? And now he's done this brilliant thing. He's brought in the father of the Jews. Anytime you say the the name Abraham, Jewish people go, huh? Right? (laughs) And he knew that, right? He is a Jew. He knows that Abraham is the father of the Jews. It's a very serious thing when when you mention Abraham. And he is, last week we began to talk about the fact that that Paul has introduced Abraham into this story. That Abraham was saved not because he did some things, but by the grace of God. And by the grace of God only. And that's the beautiful thing. These Judaizers are trying to say, no, you got to do some other stuff. And Paul says, what about Abraham? Abraham believed, and the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, his belief, his faith is what saved him, not his works, right? So Paul has been on this tear, teaching and talking and trying to uh, counteract the work of these Judaizers in the church. 
You might remember a couple weeks ago, I put up on the screens, we put up some pictures of some stars. Remember that? And I said, the stars that you see right here, is a real picture of these beautiful stars. The stars that you see here on the screen, I said, are the same stars that Abraham went out of his tent when God called him out and said, Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. As you see these stars, I want you to know this is a promise to you that you're going to have descendants that will be like the stars. You won't be able to count them. Just as you look in the sky, you, you can't count how many stars are in the sky. In the same way with your descendants, you won't be able to count them. be innumerable, right? Well, I, I told you part of Abraham's story. This morning, I want to tell you a little bit more of Abraham's story. So after he looks in the sky, and he's realizing that God has given him all these promises, he's trying to wrap his brain around this, right? Well, we, what we know about Abraham is that he was a liar, he was a con man, he was an adulterer, right? Those are the things we know about Abraham, and he's trying to wrap his mind around the fact that God is saying, I have a plan for your life, and I have a promise for future generations. So Abraham says to God, okay, I see the stars, I hear what you're saying, but how, how, how will I know this will be the truth? How, how will I know this will happen to me? You say I'll possess this land. How will I, how will I know, God? In Genesis 15. And so God says, we're going to make a covenant. Well, Abraham understands the, the, the word and the idea and the process of covenant. And so God does a covenant based around what covenant looked like in that time and period. We talk about covenant around here because we're a covenantal community at South City. That means that we have a covenant that, that to be a part of our family, we're in covenant together. A covenant just means the deepest promise you can make. It's a serious promise that we make as the body of Christ to one another, to care for one another and just to live as believers in, in the world and to care for one another and, and, and love each other. And all, all you do that with South City is you just sign a piece of paper. <laughs> it's a little different in Abraham's day. This is how you signed a covenant in Abraham's day. God said, Abraham, I want you to go get a, a ram. Let's see all the specific things here. Go get a cow, go get a goat, get a ram, get a dove, and get a pigeon, right? He says, and then I want you to cut them in half. This is a bloody scene. Just think about it. I want you to cut those animals in half. I want you to set them apart from each other. Can you imagine? What a gruesome space this would be. Set them apart from each other. And Abraham knew that to sign a covenant, in, in other words, in his day would mean that after you had done that, you would walk through this bloody mess. And by walking through this bloody mess of these halved and halves of animals, you're saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my end of the promise, the end of this covenant, then what has happened to these animals, may it be done to me as well. We might keep the covenant a little bit more if we... Uh, had that kind of a covenant. You know what I'm saying? It's very serious. When you walk through these things, you see the blood and guts of these animals, and you're going, this will be me if I don't live up to my promise. That's what a covenant was back in that time period. But here's what's amazing. You can read this in Genesis 15. What happens is, after Abraham gets it all set up, and the animals are parted, and there's blood everywhere, the Bible says that Abraham falls into a very deep sleep. And darkness comes on Abraham. Wait, wait. And Abraham doesn't walk through the covenant. He doesn't go through the covenant. He doesn't sign it. But God does. 
God represented by a flaming torch and a bowl of smoke makes its way through the covenant, right? The relational presence of God in Scripture is almost always identified as a fire of some kind, whether it be a, a fire by night, the Israelites, right? The, the fire above Mount Sinai, this, this relational presence of God walks through the covenant. In other words, God makes a covenant alone. God makes a covenant alone. And here's the amazing thing that I want us to see this morning. Listen. God has never broken his covenant. He has never broken his promise and he never, ever will. But you know what God did? Not only did he walk through the covenant and say, I'm signing this. But he also fulfilled our part. So because he never broke it, he shouldn't pay for anything. But you know what he did? Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, God's son. Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. He was willing to be torn to shreds. He was willing to be hung on a cross. And as we talked about last week, he was willing to become our curse. He kept his end of the covenant and our end of the covenant. Isn't that good? Abraham never went through it. And we're seeing in this text that just as Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, it can be the same for us. We believe in this story of Jesus that he lived a sinless life, that he died a sinner's death, and that he gave everything for us and he upheld the covenant. Even though he never broke it, He died in our place. And if we believe, just as we just sang, if we truly believe that is the case, that's the truth, then his righteousness, like it was credited to Abraham, is credited to us. Isn't that good? Praise God for his covenant, the fact that he keeps his covenant. Jesus was Abraham's seed. Jesus is the promise. You know, one of the things I love about the truth of the word of God is, uh, and one of the things I think is, is one of the greatest apologetics of Scripture, is that from beginning to the end, it's this one huge meta-narrative of Scripture. It's beautiful. Like when you read Old Testament, you read New Testament, you go all the way to Revelation, it is a consistent, continuous story. How? Because it's written by one person. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is our author and perfecter of our faith, right? Right? The author and perfecter of our faith. So from Genesis to Revelation, the story is the same. So even in the the garden, even in the very beginning, after Adam and Eve have made their mistake, after they've abandoned God, after they've rebelled against the, the life giver, God comes to them and tells them what their greatest need is. And you know what? It's your greatest need today. It's my greatest need In fact, if I just want to give you the the whole message in a few words, it's this this morning. We need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus. This is what God said of Adam and Eve in the garden in this early covenant. Genesis 3.15 in the NIV says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman speaking to to the enemy, Satan. And he says, And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. Speaking of Jesus. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The third chapter of Genesis, God is showing us that we need Jesus. 
He's showing Adam and Eve that they need Jesus. In fact, every character we talk about this morning, whether it be Adam and Eve, whether it be Abraham, whether it be Moses, whether it be Paul, the Galatians, you or me, the truth is we need Jesus. It's just that simple. It's just that simple. So Paul today in our text is going to make it really clear for us. We've been going over and over this. And and because we're going scripture verse by verse in in this series, uh, Paul is hammering home these truths, these ideas. And in different ways, we're kind of chipping away, going deeper and deeper into the fact that that, uh, Paul's trying to tell us that grace is better than obedience, right? That what God has given to Abraham as a promise is better than what he gave to Moses, right? It's better. So this is... uh, this is where we're going to start today. And I want to just give you a little heads up. I'm going to break this down into some smaller sections to unpack it a little bit because it is a pretty heady text of Scripture. We're going to go through nine or ten verses. Uh, but I do want to say that the, the last verse from last week's text, we're going to start there to give a little context of, uh, of, our, of our message today. So let's start in Galatians 3.14 in the ESV. It says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is saying this, through Jesus we receive the blessing that Abraham received, right? Which is righteousness, salvation by grace. He didn't work for it, we don't work for it. We get his promise, grace through faith. And now Paul, in our text that we're going to begin today, is going to do a a really good job of helping us try to understand what do these promises mean? Okay. Now, before we get going, I'm going to tell you, we're going to read these in the message today. I've never done this before. But I just, as I read through different translations, this, you know, the purpose of what Paul is going to do in just a minute, as he talks about a last will and testament, he's trying to contextualize so people understand. And I just felt like the message did the best job of that as well today. So look with me in the message, Galatians 3, 15 through 18. It says, friends, let me give you an example from everyday affairs of the free life I'm talking about. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one else can annul it or add to it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his descendant. You will observe that the scripture and careful language of the, of the legal document does not say to descendants, referring to everyone in general, but to your descendant, the noun, note, is singular, referring to Christ. This is the way I interpret this, Paul says. A will earlier ratified by God is not annulled by an addendum attached 430 years later, thereby thereby negating the promise of the will. No, this addendum with its instructions and regulations has nothing to do with the promised inheritance in that will. Would you pray with me as we get going this morning in our text? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter from Paul to the Galatians to us. God, thank you that you want us to completely understand your heart for us. Understand this amazing gift of salvation. We don't work for it. It's given to us as a gift. And the law shows us how desperately we need that gift. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts, all of our hearts and all of our minds, to learn from you now. Holy Spirit of the living God, lead us to all truth. Anoint me. Help me to get out of the way, God, that I might not be seen or heard, but people would hear the heart of your text and the heart of this word by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first note I want you to write down on the back of your card. I left some space there this week for you to write just a few notes. Here's the first one. The will. 
the will. Now, I want us to understand he's talking about like a last will and testament. A will is basically a promise. If I have a will, then I want to make some promises to my kids, maybe to some other people. None of them are going to get very much, but I want to leave something. I want to make a promise. I promise to you when I die, I'm leaving some things. I'm doing some things, right? That's what Paul's trying to show us here is that in, in in a similar way, God has made some promises. Now, a will is a very serious legal binding document. It's very serious. It's something you usually have to do with an attorney present. Uh, one of our elders, Justin Elrod, is an elder uh, law attorney, and he, he specializes in this, and uh, he's very good. And I, I love the fact that, that as I thought about this this week, I thought about some of the work that he does. It's a very serious thing that we do when we put our uh, information in our will. What Paul is saying is when somebody has a will, it's a binding agreement. Especially back then, it was not changed. It's not something you, you, you tweaked, right? Once it was set in stone, it was set in stone. You could take it to the bank. Paul's also trying to say, listen, if you think you can do that with, a, with man's will, with a human's will, how much more will the God of the universe keep his promise? That's what Paul's trying to show us in this, quote, will. Now, what are the promises? You remember what the promises uh, of God are to Abraham? Let me just remember. Uh, remind you of them. Abraham is going to be, number one, he's going to be a father. He's 99 years old. His wife is 90 years old. Uh, that's kind of a big deal, right? Because it's impossible. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. Only could happen is if God made it happen. If it was a miracle, God did all the work. There's a reason he wanted to show us that. So he's going to be a father. He's going to have a son. He's going to have an heir. Uh, Abraham is going to be the father of countless nations. Just as he sees the stars, you won't be able to count your children. Abraham Abraham is going to be given a land to possess, the the land of Canaan, right? Uh, Flowing with milk and honey. It's the place of the the Jews even today in Israel. Uh, Abraham is, through Abraham is going to be a blessing given to every family on the earth, the Bible says. What What is the blessing that every family on the earth can have? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The blessing that comes through Abraham to every family on the earth is Jesus. But does that mean every family on the earth is going to be saved and go to heaven? No. It means that we need to get the That's why we do missions. That's why missions is so important. We go to the world. We go across the street. We tell our friends and neighbors and family about Jesus so they have the information of who God is. That he is a holy God and we're an unholy people in desperate need of Jesus. And it's through their faith that they come to know him. So the blessing is that through faith, every family on the earth can be blessed. But they must have faith. They must put their faith in the Lord. I want to show you a few specific things about a will that Paul talks about in this text. Number one, he says it can't be changed. It can't be annulled. It can't be canceled. Uh, they're set in stone. I, occasionally I give you these 2 to $3 words from seminary. And uh, today I want to give you another one. The word is immutable. God's promises to Abraham and promises to us are immutable. That means they don't change. They can never change. God's love, his promises to us are immutable, never changing. He says uh, that it was ratified, it was sealed, it was uh, finished, right? Now, how did God ratify Abraham's covenant? You remember? I just talked about it. He walked through 
these animals, the sacrifice of these animals, God himself alone, without Abraham's help, without Abraham's signature, without Abraham's uh, even trying to keep it because he couldn't, he kept his end and our end. He ratified these promises with that covenant. Of course, we know Jesus sealed the covenant for us with his finished work on the cross. Now, the good news is that I want us to see today is just like this will that Paul's talking about, there's nothing that you can do to change God's love and promise for you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more than he loves you right now. There's nothing you can do to make God not love you. He loves you. His commitment and promise to you is sure. It's, it's, it's true. I heard a pastor this week use this uh, example. I thought it was pretty good. He said, you're not going to be getting divorce papers from God ever, right? It's not going to happen. If you are in Christ, you can rest in the promises of God. That's what Paul's trying to say. So number one, you can count on it. It can't be changed. You can take it to the bank. Secondly, he mentions that there's one descendant. Remember? Who's that descendant? It's Jesus. Jesus is that descendant. So the promises can't be changed or altered or added to. And that one descendant is Jesus. If we're in Christ, we're heirs of that same promise. Thirdly, he says, he mentions that the promise was made to God, uh, made by God to Abraham. But there was something that happened 430 years later. What's that? That's the law of God that he gave to Moses. And so Paul's saying, hey, listen, you guys, remember what the Judaizers had brought into the Galatian churches? They want more adherence to the law. We want you keeping the rules. We want you to get circumcised. That's not enough just to trust Jesus. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. They're talking about the law. So God comes to Abraham, gives him a promise, which is grace, which is salvation through faith, not through works. And then 430 years later, God comes to Moses and gives the law. That's works, right? That's works of men. So Paul's trying to say, listen, just because the law is given 430 years later, because it's the new thing, because it's earlier, it's younger, it, means, it doesn't mean that it negates the promise. I like the, the wording of the message in ways that it talks about the fact that um, it's a thoughtful addition, it says here in just a minute. It's an addition. It honors the promise, but it doesn't negate the promise. Let's look at 18 through 20. It says, what is the point then of the law, the attached addendums? Using this legal language since he's already started this legal example. It was a thoughtful addition to the original covenant promises made to Abraham. The purpose of the law was to keep a sinful people in the way of salvation until Christ, the descendant, came. Inheriting the promises and uh, distributing them to us. Obviously, obviously this law was not a first-hand encounter with God. It was arranged uh, by angelic messengers through a middleman, Moses. But if there's a middleman, as there was in Sinai, then the people are not dealing directly with God, are they? But the original promise is the direct blessing of God received by faith. Here's the second note you can put on your card if you're doing that this morning. Paul's trying to help show us what's the difference between the law and the promise. What are we talking about? If we have this promise of salvation by grace, God comes directly to Moses, gives him this promise. Why do we now have this list of rules and laws? Why is that the case? Right? 
It says here in the message language anyway, it says uh, it's a thoughtful addition to the original promises made to Abraham. But we've already got this promise of grace. Why do we need this list of rules? And Scripture tells us in the message to keep a sinful people in the way of salvation. Some of your translations say because of transgressions, because of sin, right? Paul's saying the reason for the law is to show us what sin is. It's to show us that we are a sinful people. So when we go on mission to the world and we say he's a holy God, and guess what? He's outlined in his word in the law, the first five books of the Bible, that we're not holy. In fact, just try and keep some of these rules. Just try and follow this at all if you can. And you're going to come up short every time. The Bible says no one is righteous. No one. No, not one. No one can do it. No one can keep it. And that is the purpose of the law. To show you you can't keep it. To show you you can't do it. That we need Jesus. People need to understand that they're sinners. I love this quote from John Stott. He says, after God gave the promise to Abraham... He gave the law to Moses. Why? Simply because he had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposed sin, provoked sin, condemned sin. The purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really like underneath. This is what he's like. He's sinful. He's rebellious. He's guilty. He's under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. It's only, I love this, it's only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. That's the purpose of the law. It's so easy to look at the the law and go, whew, I can't do it. I'm guilty. I can't keep this. Paul says in the New Testament, why why, why do I want to do some things and I can't do them? Can't do the things I want to do. We can't keep this law. And it's why we need grace. Look at this this language back to back, can you? The promise or the grace of God is to be believed. The law, the works of men is to be obeyed, right? One is given freely. One is to be earned. The promise is relational in nature. It's unconditional. It's not something we earn. The law, rather, is contractual. And completely conditional. You see that? Abraham, the language is promise, grace, faith, versus Moses' law, commands, works. Paul says that the law was added because of sin, because of transgressions, or to help keep people in the way of salvation. He kind of explains this a little bit more in Romans. I want to show you three different spots in the book of Romans, really quickly, where Paul's explaining this a little bit more. Romans 3 20 through 22 in the ESV says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What's what's the law for? To give us knowledge of sin, to show us, wow, I'm a sinner. I'm a miserable, wretched, broken person. That's the purpose of the law, Paul says. 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, right? Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness comes Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness is going to come through Jesus and Jesus alone, not by the law. Romans 4.15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
If people don't know there is a law, they don't know anything about it, they don't know they're sinners. They don't know they're enemies of God, the Bible says. They need this information. That's why we have to go. That's why we have to tell them so that they can have that information and place their faith in Christ. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, yet, uh, if it had not been for the law, Paul says, I would not have known sin. The law is even showing Paul himself, you're a sinner. You're a miserable sinner. And then Paul is going to break out for us this idea of communication. How does God communicate to Abraham versus how does God communicate to Moses? This is what this text is talking about here. There's two different ideas. Verse 19 says, obviously, this law was not a firsthand encounter with God. It was arranged by angelic messengers through a middleman, Moses. But if there's a middleman, as there was at Sinai, then the people are not dealing directly with God, are they? But the original promise is the direct blessing of God received by faith. Here's what Paul's trying to say. When God spoke to Abraham, he came directly to Abraham, right? And he brings a promise of salvation through faith. It's direct communication. But when he comes to Moses, Paul says something here in Galatians. He says, it was God to angels, to Moses, and then to the people. So with Abraham, it's first-person communication. Uh, with the people over here, it's third-person communication with the law. You see the two different things? What's that about, right? Well, Paul's trying to make the point that the fact that the law goes to angels and it goes to ultimately a, a mediator. Some of your texts say intermediary, which is Moses. Moses had to stand in the gap, basically, on top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. Paul's saying he received it from angels. Now, if you go back and read Exodus 20, you're not going to see angels in the text. It's very interesting. It does say that there's smoke and thunder and lightning going around the mountaintop. One commentary I read said that very well could have been the wings of thousands of angels, you know. I don't know. But what's interesting is Paul says that God gave the law to angels, and then the angels gave it to Moses. But this is not the only place we see this. Uh, we see it here in Galatians, but we also see it in Acts 7, in Stephen's message to the uh, Sanhedrin before he's stoned. He mentions the fact that God gives the law to angels and then the angels uh, to Moses. Also, the writer of Hebrews mentions it in Hebrews too. I just think that's very interesting. The point here I'm trying to make is that but for those of us that are children of God, children of the promise of God by faith, it's the same as it was with Abraham, right? To Moses was a third-person communication. To Abraham was just God and Abraham. When we, as children of that promise, as heirs of that promise, when we believe, when God saves our souls, it's one-on-one -on -one communication. Here's, here's the thing. Jesus is a better Moses. You see that? Jesus is now the mediator. Jesus is now the go-between, but Jesus is God. Right? Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Therefore, it's one-to-one, -one, as it was with Abraham. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 9, 15, he says, Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's what we're talking about today. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The first covenant is the law. 
The new covenant is in Jesus' blood for us, right? He always keeps his promise, his covenant. Promise is given to Abraham. Let's give just a recap here. Promise given to Abraham. He believes. He believes God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. He's credited as righteous. He didn't work for it. didn't earn it. He believed, and, and God gave him righteousness, right? And then God gives the law to Moses. That law shows us our sinfulness. It shows us that we're a broken people in need, in desperate need of Jesus. Then Jesus' death redeems us from our sins that we committed under the penalty of that law, right? And then as we believe, as we have faith in him, we are connected to God in first person in the same way Abraham was. It makes us heirs of that promise, right? It, it means we get, we get the part of the will here, right? Some of you, if we're talking in will language, you, what did dad leave me, right? He left you salvation. Through Abe, the same promise given to Abraham is given to you. Thank God for grace and not having to keep up with the law, Amen. Galatians 3.29, we're going to get to this a little bit more next week, but Galatians 3.29 says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, right? If you belong to Christ, you're an heir of Abraham. Jesus was the descendant, right? And because we're in Christ Jesus, we receive the promise of God. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. It says, if such is the case, is the law, then an anti-promise, right? The opposite of a promise, a negation of God's will for us. Paul's saying, no, not at all. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God. And therefore to show us the futility of devising some religious system for getting by our own efforts what we can only get by waiting in faith for God to complete in this promise. For if any kind of rule-keeping had power to create life in us, we would certainly have gotten it by this time. Paul's saying, just because the law is newer, just because it's the new shiny thing God's given to us, it doesn't negate this promise given to Abraham. You know, Paul sometimes was um, accused of preaching against the law. You can sometimes look at Paul and go, man, is he... He's just like doing away with the law. Some people thought that. In fact, Acts 21 says that the group of people said, this man is preaching against God and the law. But Paul, Paul wasn't preaching against the law. In fact, look again just quickly here, back where we were in Romans 7, 7. He says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Paul is not against the law, right? And he's saying this again. Uh, it's, it's, it's not the law. It's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just not negating what, what God has done in the promise. He only wants the Galatians to understand the law doesn't save. That the law shows us sinfulness, but it doesn't save. It only condemns. It doesn't bring life. It brings death. It doesn't forgive sin. It only shows us that we're guilty of it and that we're desperate of Jesus. Verse 23 and 24, as we close here, he says, Until the time... When we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. 
The law was like those Greek tutors with which you're familiar who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they're set out for. Paul's saying the law not only sets people in the way of salvation, shows them their sinfulness in ways that protects them, like some tutors or guardians. Come on, kids. Guardians are making sure the cars are not going to slam into the kids. We're being careful. Let's get to school. Let's go the direction we want to go. Paul's saying that's kind of what the law has done as well. It's helped usher us in the direction of salvation. It's helped protect us from absolute anarchy. It's given us some direction towards salvation. See, Paul wanted to show the Galatians, I mentioned this last week, he wanted to show the Galatians that God hadn't changed his mind. That salvation has always been a work of grace. It's never been a, 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 something of works. It's always been a gift of grace, not something that you could work for. Even in the Old Testament, salvation was grace given. Sometimes we get that confused. Paul wants to show here the Galatians. He wants them to know with all that they are and all their minds and their hearts that what God started on Mount Sinai with Moses, this law, you keep these rules, that Jesus finished on Mount Calvary, right? What he started on Mount Sinai, Jesus finished on Mount Calvary. Grace, forgiveness, salvation. It's done. Jesus said in Matthew 5, I fulfilled the law. Because you couldn't. I fulfilled it. I kept it. I did it. You can't, but I did. And Jesus said, as Daryl prayed this morning, he said, it's the finished work of Christ. The work is done. It's complete. Salvation by grace was God's promise to Abraham, and it was fulfilled on the cross. I, there's a quote here I want to end with. I love Tim Keller. He was a pastor in New York City for many years, Redeemer Church. He says, if the law of Moses came as a way of salvation, it means that God changed his mind. It would mean that God had decided that we didn't need a Savior and that he would give out his blessing or salvation on the basis of performance and not promise. You see that? When the law was given, God wasn't saying, I've changed my mind, now see if you can keep up with this. Right? Jesus wasn't saying to those disciples at, at, on the mountain there, Sermon on the Mount, saying, try harder, do better, figure it out. He was saying, trust me. Know me, I've done it for you. It's because of the law that we know we're sinners. It's real easy, right? In fact, I, we did a little exercise last week and I said, I just ask you to think in your mind, have you ever lied, have you ever cheated, have you ever lusted in your heart, have you ever stolen anything, have you ever? Yeah, and the answer is yes, we all have. We all have because we're all sinners. The Bible tells us that, we know that. And the message this morning is we need Jesus. We can't keep the law. It's just that simple. God showed us through Abraham, but before Abraham, he showed us through Adam, right? In the Garden of Eden, he said, you need Jesus. Abraham, you need Jesus. Moses, you need Jesus. Paul, Galatians, South City, Drew, how desperately I need Jesus. You know, I'm so thankful my family's here. Many of my family are here today. 
And my brother David is here. I don't get to see him very much, and I love him very, very much. Um, the Lord laid this story on my heart a couple of days ago. I was in high school. I've told you many of the dumb things I've done, and there are lots of stories still to go. I mean, we just we haven't even touched it yet, you know, because I've done a lot of dumb stuff. But in high school, I was really stupid. <laughs> And I made a dumb choice one night. My parents were out of town. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Um, they were out of town, and I had some friends over, and uh, we had a lot of alcohol. And I got stupid drunk that night. I mean, blubbering idiot, drunken stupor drunk. I was passed out on the floor. I remember being sick. I vaguely remember my friends carrying me to my bedroom and just throwing me on my bed. But I was passed out drunk. I know this part because my brother told me later. He said he came in to see me, to check on me, and he said, I saw you in that condition. He said, I just sat on the side of your bed and I just wept. Let me tell you what David saw that night in me. He saw my need for Jesus. He saw my need for Jesus. And I think it even made him think about his own need for Jesus. And I'm so thankful that God has saved my family by his grace. Thank you, God, you've saved my family. But I want you to know something. You need Jesus. I was a mess. Psalm 40 says, I waited and I waited and waited on God. At last he looked, he finally heard my cry. He set my foot on a rock. (laughs) He placed a God song in my heart, in my mouth. I could sing of the things of the Lord. And many came to see and know him. That's my story. That's my testimony. I was in the miry clay. I was in the mud and God lifted me out of it. Not because I could have any strength couldn't have done a thing. I was miserable, helpless, and God in his grace lifted me up. I needed Jesus. Today, I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what need you have in your life. You may say, well, mine's financial. Trust me, you need Jesus. No, mine's my marriage. It's a mess. Uh, We're always at each other. No, trust me, it's not just relational. It's spiritual. You need Jesus your greatest need. It's your greatest need. And today I just want to tell you, you can look up here and know that God can do anything in anybody. Praise God. He can take the messiest of messes and redeem. Nothing in me could do that. Only God in his grace. Only God in his grace. Listen, do you have faith this morning? Are there there any of you here today that you'd say, I've never trusted that grace? I I don't know about that faith. In fact, if I were to die today, I don't even know if I'd go to heaven. I just don't know. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? I just want to ask that question. Then we're going to pray and we're going to go. We're going to sing. But if you're in a place this morning, you'd say, Drew, I'm, I'm in that sort of a mess. I've been in that sort of a mess time and time again. I've tried to do my own thing, go my own way, be my own God make up my own rules and it has not worked for me would you pray for me 
That's all I'm asking you to do. If you, if you want me to just pray for you in just sort of a quiet, unspoken way, I just want to, would you just lift up your hand right where you are and say, pray for me? Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. I'm in a mess. I know I need Jesus. Pray for me. Anybody else? Would you just be honest with the Lord this morning? Nobody else is looking. I'm I'm just looking. I just want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay. Thanks. I'm back. Thank you. Thank you, brother. We'll wait just another second. Anyone else? Hands keep going up. Once you put it up, you can put it right back down. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Friends, God is in the business of taking ashes and bringing beauty. Only God can take a broken life and make beautiful things from it. It's what he wants to do in your life if you'll trust him. It's what he wants to do with your future if you believe. I didn't say work harder. I didn't say figure it out. No, when, when we work, we work because we love. God, I can't wait to serve you. I can't wait to do the things you've called me to. It's my privilege, Lord, to, to honor you, to live for you. It's my privilege. So I want to pray for you, those that raised your hands and, and for all of us this morning, that God would help us understand our great need for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your mercy, which is new today. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Your faithfulness to the covenant that you signed alone. You had no expectation that we could fulfill our part. And so you did it for us. On the cross of Calvary, you did it for us. Lord, many of us today are in a mess. And we've raised our hands, God, and we've opened our hearts to say to you, we're a mess, God. We need you. I'm not okay. My life is not okay. My faith is not okay. My fear is out of control. I don't know what's going on. Lord, I need you. And God, I'm so glad that they were able to raise their hands in this place because this is the right place to be in need. To be honest before a loving God who says, I meet needs, that's my job. And their greatest need is to know Jesus. So Lord, if, if one person here doesn't know you this morning, God, would you draw them to yourself and save them today? From your mercy, God, by your grace. They haven't earned it. They haven't worked for it, God. Would you help them receive this gift today? In Jesus' name, amen.